welcome back to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. And you're with us as we go deeper into the world of the novel Post-Captain. Mike, in our previous podcast, we were finding Stephen and Jack in rather a new world, weren't we? We really were. They're thrown up on land here. Jack does not have a ship. Jack's trying to decide what what he's going to do here. And we are in time of peace, so not uh, not great prospects. Jack has also had his prospects financially turned around, which has turned around his love life prospects as well. So a bit of a tough situation. Absolutely. And and we've talked about how they're in this new social world as well of female company. And they're also in the world of you know, living in society. They're hosting a ball. That's right. That's right. <laughs> who would have who thunk it? <laughs> So that got us thinking, didn't it? Maybe we have an opportunity to bring our first ever Lubber's Hole guest into the podcast. Yeah, because I think one of the things that we've said so often is that this is not just on sea, it's also on land. There's characterizations, there's richness about the times in which they lived and how they lived. And I think it behooved us to get somebody who's got a little expertise in that area. Absolutely. So later on in this episode, we're going to be hearing from Karen Milliard, who knows all about the social settings and parties and dances and behavior and etiquette of the time. And uh, we're going to learn a little bit from her experience and the work that she does. So we're really looking forward to that. Absolutely. To fast forward the story a little bit, Stephen and Jack end up hitching a ride on an Indiaman, an East India Company cargo ship, to get themselves back home again, this time in time of war, hoping that they can get back to snap up a command for Jack, you know, before all the, all the plum jobs have been taken now that war's broken out again with right. France. And this gives us the chance to see, you know, Jack and Stephen seeing life aboard ship, but as passengers on somebody else's ship. And we're also going to get to see some action with Jack not in command, but just kind of being part of the part of the ship's establishment. I'm going to do my history nerd thing here and say that the the, the name of the Indiaman that was taking them back to England in presumably 1802 was the Lord Nelson. And I looked at this and I thought for one brief second, I doubted Patrick O'Brien. I thought in 1802, surely that's very early for there to be an Indiaman named after Nelson with, with, with the handle Lord behind it. But guess what? There really was an East India Company ship called the Lord Nelson. She was launched in 1799, which is the year in which Nelson was raised to the peerage for his part in the Battle of the Nile. And guess what? Just classic O'Brien, this action, albeit without two fictional passengers on board, this action wherein the Lord Nelson encounters a French privateer and goes through various kind of trials and tribulations, that action really happened. The Bellone, the French privateer, was a real privateer. The Lord Nelson was a real ship. So... Again, fantastic job to Patrick O'Brien for taking a real and interesting bit of history and plonking it very credibly in the middle of our fictional story. I can't imagine the amount of research that O'Brien did on every one of these because his, his detail is just stunning. And of course, besides having two um, passengers, figures from the Royal Navy, Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin, this cargo ship, the Lord Nelson, has two... Um, young ladies of an uncertain age, two misses, two maids. I'm guessing they must have been kind of teenagers. The the Mrs. Lamb, these twins who are painted somehow as, you know, not not being the most handsome women in the world and not being the most svelte of figure. 
and they're kind of an amusing distraction as the as the, as the guests are having their dinner. But action takes place. The Bellon tries to take the Lord Nelson, and these two ladies, the Mrs. Lamb, are in the thick, in the thick of the action. They are, which is is kind of amazing that you've got this ship, which is really, as you say, it's a merchantman. It's designed to look a bit, little bit like a ship of the line. It's yeah. it carries some some heavy artillery there, but not really enough people. Certainly not like a man of war to man this thing. And and we also have this moment in this book, which just really resonated for me now, where uh, Stephen discovers that the Spanish flu is is on board and and probably is going to sweep through. That some of the India locals who are are crewing the ship. We've also been great at fighting, uh, we've heard before, are, are down sick. And so people have to take over and fight. So Jack certainly does that. At one point in the battle, this young lad kind of shows up when some of the, the Indian crew can no longer bring shot and, and bring gunpowder and, and the wads, the things that they need. And Jack just dresses down this one young lad who, who kind of is, is a bit inept. Uh, shouts things in, in and, words and of one we, syllable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not it's it's conversation that certainly is right for the din of battle. It's not right for proper young English men and women <laughs> to yeah. to be conversing back and forth with. And so later, Jack, who gets sort of really taken out during this battle and uh, can't remember some of it is confronted by the young ladies who, you know, are taking him to task for all the most dreadful things that he shouted to Lucy, the most dreadful things they had ever heard in their life. You know, if you swore at my sister, oh, Captain Aubrey, fie. It was hilarious. And having been told already by Stephen Matron, you know, uh, Jack was concerned about the ladies before he saw them. Stephen confides to him that the, the two women are aboard, but disguised as men and are a little bit unhappy with how well the deception has been going. So here they are finally (laughs) sort of throwing off their disguise by commenting to Captain Aubrey about these just terrible things that they said to my sister here. I also love how Captain Azima, the captain of the privateer, um, he, he gets a little bit of Fringlish dialogue. And, and again, we, we talked last time about the uh, the way that O'Brien rendered Scottish and Irish dialogue. Now we've got slightly mistranslated French turning up in the mouths of a French person trying to speak English. And Captain Azima says, I have asked them to carry robes so they can assume the form divine. I'm, I'm adding the accent. Right. And you can kind of really imagine this is a very genteel, courteous act by this uh, privateer saying, I have asked them to wear their dresses again. And we got right. a little bit of the same thing from Christy Pallier back when, when Jack and Stephen were having dinner. You know, how do I look? Are you looking pimping? Which is presumably just a bad <laughs> translation of a perfectly reasonable French word. Right. And again, Patrick O'Brien's having fun with the fact that he knows what goes on in the brains of Francophones when they try and speak English and just how bizarre some of the translations sound when they come out. We get a different point of view for this for this battle, the battle between the Lord Nelson and the Bellon. Stephen's in his usual place in the in the cockpit offering surgical help to people who've been wounded. Um, Jack takes over a division of guns, so he's going back in his career to the job that a, a midshipman or a lieutenant would have had in the Navy. And we get this idea that actually, for him, battle is actually quite an easy thing when you're not in command. He doesn't have to do any of the decision-making, any of the strategy. He doesn't have to worry about which way the ship's going to go next or anything other than 
the four or five guns that are in his battery and he can just focus on one small thing. And that's almost a liberating thing for him. He absolutely knows what he's doing. He absolutely knows how to help these merchantmen load and serve and point their guns. And it's almost like they, this whole action is a kind of a, a release for him. He can just get on and fight, which is what he knows how to do. Yeah, it was really well written and a fascinating point of view. And because Jack knows that there's some really tough decisions to be made and is thinking that those are not ones that are mine to make. So what are the ones that are mine to make? And does does a heck of a job on the ones that are his to make, but is quite relieved, I think, to your point, right. not to have to do those others. No, that's right. It's it's smart, I think, of O'Brien. You know, if if every action scene had Aubrey perceiving yeah. this, the tactical situation perfectly and taking the right gamble and leading the men and being the war hero every single time, it would get really dull and we wouldn't believe it. So he's given Aubrey the chance to just play a, a minor part in this battle and also to give us some detail from his point of view. And I don't know, with, without too many spoilers in mind, it sets up the possibility that later in this same book, we will get to see some ship-on-ship action where Aubrey gets to do the whole the whole in-command thing and to use all of his tactical skill. But we know that that might come later. Right. So we have Jack and Stephen and, and the Mrs. Lambs you know, on this India man. And Jack has posited earlier on that, you know, that the where they're headed for is going to be a tough place to get to because it's heavily patrolled by the English. And lo and behold, and they're almost there. And there's one more action, an action, once again, with a unique Patrick O'Brien point of view where all the prisoners have to go downstairs and they're kind of describing the battle from what they hear. Uh, yeah, from the thuds and bangs of the, uh, of the action. Yeah, which was fascinating to me as well. And ultimately, we move forward to, uh, once again, Stephen and Jack are free to return to England. And in fact, they do. Jack makes it as quickly as possible uh, back to headquarters to uh, see whether there's anything available, which of course there's not. We're way late in in the beginning of this war now. And although, although good news is there's a more sympathetic first lord than there oh, was when yes. first went hunting at the beginning of the book. We've got Lord Melville in charge. That's probably a good thing. But like you say, he's still he's still come up dry in terms of looking for a ship right now. Right. Would love to have provided a plum to Aubrey. I, I take it there's been a change in in the. Uh, uh, the dominant political party. And so um, he gets a warm reception, but there doesn't seem to be anything much for him. And they've got this opportunity to go to a gathering of queenies, you know, the, the queenie who we talked about in Master and Commander, who uh, as a younger woman had really tutored Jack and then uh, ended up being married to an admiral in whose hands uh, Jack's fate kind of rested earlier on. And Queenie now in London giving a big party. Jack and Stephen are invited to go. And Jack, despite having to look over his shoulder all the time, uh, wants to make his way there. That's right. So uh, still in hopes of managing to secure a ship and knowing that he needs to go and hang out with the well-to-do and personal connections of Lord Keith and uh, and Lord Melville, Jack goes along to this soiree or this route hosted it by Queenie, and he encounters this wealthy merchant, Canning. And even though so many of the other shorebound characters that Jack meets are 
a little bit duplicitous or a little bit open to the main chance or a little bit likely to intrigue against him, we get this bluff, jovial, open-minded, friendly, you know, Aubrey sympathetic character Canning, who's basically going to say, I'm looking for a captain for a privateer. And at the party, he's not willing to ask Jack outright, because that would be against etiquette. But he kind of hints very, very, very broadly that he's looking for a commander for this privateer. It's going to be the biggest privateer afloat. It's going to cruise long distances, no admirals, no board of the admiralty, um, no convoys, no dispatches, just get out there and take prizes. And I think we're really meant to see this as a plum opportunity for Jack, if only he can see it as such. And I think partly Jack's innate pride in the service means that, you know, he still regards the idea of a privateer as a very kind of, you know, low rent thing to be involved in. But also I think he's not sure about his where he stands with Stephen and, you know, their rivalry over Diana. And he's not sure where he stands with prize money and Sophie and the world. And I think he really can't see clearly that this friendly, outgoing merchant offering him this plum job is really what it appears to be and i feel really sad as i read that part of the story because i think come on you clown you know you could set yourself to rights and you could marry the the girl the one that you're meant to marry and you could probably thereby rescue your relationship with your best friend Stephen. just take the job from the nice merchant guy but he really doesn't see it like that and he's left dangling and he's willing to go after the most slender the most ill-conditioned the most kind of feeble looking promise of the most weird-looking ship imaginable rather than take this nice plum opportunity of of selling as a letter of mark or a privateer. Yeah, it is, it is interesting because part of what resonated to me there was this thing of thinking back to Master and Commander and Dylan kind of saying, you know, he's just a little too interested in prize money. He's, he uses this word commercial and Jack almost feels like he needs to call him out that – you know, he doesn't feel like he has honor and glory and love of country, uh, even though he does like to take a prize given any opportunity. However, later in his walk in the park that night after Queenie's party, you know, he seems to play that out a little bit. You know, how's the ad- admiralty been to me? What's likely in my future there? What about this offer with Canning? What's going to happen? At the same time that he's also kind of weighing the scales and also thinking about whether or not you can even weigh the scales or should weigh the scales or whether it's proper to weigh the scales on Sophie versus Diana. He's got this incredible walk, which he can do in the dark of night because he's not likely to be arrested for death there, um, wandering around the park. But like you, I kind of thought, wow, Jack, Jack you set up for the world, you're set up for the future. And I guess we'd be set up for a very different set of books to follow. And he said, yeah, well, Mr. Absolutely. Canning, rather than asking me for my recommendation, why don't I just do it? <laughs> so more is going to happen on that walk. But first, let's take a break.
Welcome back. We're going to hear more about Jack's nighttime walk shortly, but first, we want to explore what was going on in those social set-piece parties at Melbury Lodge and at Queenie's. And to do that, it's time to meet someone who has some expert knowledge. We're joined on the podcast today by our guest, Karen Milliard. Karen is a teacher of historical social dance and event organiser and reenactor based in Toronto in Canada. Karen specialises in the world of Jane Austen and also the world of the stories of Patrick O'Brien. So welcome, Karen. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining. Um, you're our inaugural guest and we're super excited to have you with us. Thank you. <laughs> what got you started with this whole idea of reenacting history? I think that the roots of it were in a week that my class spent, uh, I was about 11 or 12, at a living history museum here in Toronto. We were using the schoolhouse in historically appropriate clothing. We had dinner pails, bread and butter. Um, we played jacks and trio cat. Um, we learned from 19th century maps and things like that. We, we didn't do a single anachronistic thing all week long. And that had a huge impact on me. Then uh, a little bit later, just a few few years later, I was working at the very same village um, as an interpreter. And, and there was one particular afternoon, these late November afternoons, the public gone and the coals rustling as the fire dies down, the ticking of the clock, so quiet. And just a very powerful feeling of almost being in that earlier world. It was just um, just magical. And then later on, when I discovered English country dancing, and I eventually started doing the Jane Austen balls. So Jane Jane Austen balls, yeah. like as in you host an event that, that is a Jane Austen theme ball. Yes, yes. I was already wow. um, running this um, recreational social dance group, um, and I decided to do the Jane Austen ball because people are seeing the movies. The adaptations were uh, were, were very popular. Um, and I thought, okay, so if I can just say, yeah, you've seen this in the movies, come and do it with us. You know, it just seemed like a, an easy way right. to introduce people and get them interested. So, so this is the kind of dancing that's not couple ballroom dancing. You're talking about the formal kind of dancing in sets. Yes. It's not exactly formal because the dance form itself has a kind of built in gaiety, I guess, and merriment. Uh, it's just, a, it's a very happy and high-spirited dance form a lot of the time. But yes, it's what you see in the Jane Austen movies. It's people dancing in groups. Uh, you yeah. have a partner, but you also have neighbors and corners and things like that. It's, it's actually mm. related to things like square dance and Scottish country dancing and things like that. Oh, okay. Eventually, um, I decided to just expand from that and so um, I began doing, for example, my Jane Austen weekend. We have hands-on workshops. People actually cook food over an open fire. Um, we learn to write letters with quill pens and sealing wax. We, of course, dance. We have multiple mm -hmm. meals eaten by firelight and candlelight. And those have just been so fulfilling to be able to share an immersive, tactile experience with people. This is what it was like. It's been really, really deeply satisfying. 
Fantastic. And it sounds like that's reliving almost that that moment that you had as a as a as a schoolgirl thinking now I'm really in touch with real living history. Yes. Yes. Fantastic. Karen, tell me, how did you discover Patrick O'Brien? What led you into the world of these Aubrey Matron books? Uh, the books were recommended to me and I just got, I just fell straight in love with them, uh, got completely absorbed by them. I've always loved sailing and boats and anything to do with boats and water and ships. And um, so that together with history and the, the fantastic mm-hmm. quality of the literature was just, I just absolutely adored it. And eventually decided to expand my activities in that direction as well. So I started to do my Aubrey Maturin weekend, which is called Master and Commander, and it has happened mm-hmm. every fall, um, every autumn uh, for the last five or six years now. And um, again, it's an immersive experience. We start the weekend with um, uh, going out on a tall ship, on, on Lake Ontario, we have a wonderful cruise in the afternoon, and um, we have uh, five meals. We sing sea shanties. Uh, <laughs> we have we had uh, our bosun rigging a bosun's chair, giving us rides. <laughs> this last year, um, we've had duels. Um, you know, we, we we've had the ships cook, um, having teaching us how to cook salt pork and oh, all kinds of things. Oh, fantastic. So I've, I've got to ask the next question, which is, yeah. did, you handled muskets. Did, did you also get to handle cannon? Did, did these reenactments get to the point of firing a gun? That all depends on the site. Um, oh. We often go down to Fort York, which is an 1812 era fort down in the harbor. Yeah. And um, we have done things there. There, um, there, is, uh, there is some permission to fire muskets and cannon. Um, our main site for the rest of the weekend has always been Montgomery's Inn, which is a marvelous, marvelous museum in another part of the city. And we're not actually allowed to use gunpowder there, but we've done all kinds of wonderful other things. And when I'm at another reenactment, you know, offsite, like a, an 1812 reenactment that has nothing to do with the books, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a naval reenactor. And there I have been put in charge of the slow match. So I have fired the guns, yes, from <laughs> out on the water. <laughs> Fantastic. What, what's that experience like? What's the, what's the moment of setting the cannon off? That must be quite a visceral experience. Um, it's Well, it's very loud. And these are just tiny guns compared to the ones, you know, that you would have actually had in, in, on a warship. Yeah. Mind you, a couple of years ago, I was actually at a reenactment where they had a, I think it was a 40 pounder. That's a big old beast. Sure. And they fired that gun. They warned everybody because, oh my God, the din was appalling. It was just one gun. And I was at quite a distance, (laughs) but sitting right behind the gun on the boat, I, you know, I can only plug one ear because I've got the lens (laughs) on my other hand and uh, it's loud enough. Um, (laughs) And, you know, everybody's in their naval outfits. I was there in my pea jacket and my trousers and my hair was braided in a queue down my back. And, um, you know, it's, it's just wonderful. It's, um, it's pretty extraordinary. And occasionally I've, I've yelled 1812 era insults at the other crews as they go by the other direction. <laughs> oh my word. Are, are any of them suitable for public broadcast or should we come back to that when we're doing our, our explicit tagged episode, maybe? <laughs> oh, it's mostly things along the lines of like, 
grass combing lovers and things like that. Oh, good. Okay. Of all the lovers, we like the grass combing ones. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Great. Karen, you've, you know, you've studied so much about social behavior and dancing and fashion of this mm-hmm. ear. How is Patrick O'Brien doing in the way he writes it? What have you spotted? Generally speaking, I rank him very high. He, he, his, his research was extraordinary. Um, there are some little errors here and there, but mostly he corrected those as the series went on. Um, there may have been well-informed readers who, as he's acknowledged in a couple of his introductions here and there, they've, they've just made little corrections for him, or maybe his own research revealed more about a particular detail or aspect of life. One of the most notable earlier in this series is uh, what I have called occasionally the promiscuous handshaking that occurs all Ooh. over the place when people are introduced. Um, this absolutely would not have happened. It right. was a very formal society, even in the Navy. Um, yeah. The social, you know, the social cues were were ingrained in people very, very early on in life, and handshaking was something that only took place between people who were very, very socially intimate, um, very close friends, or you might have been welcoming someone into the family, say if someone had just gotten engaged or whatever, you shook hands to welcome them. But when you... But colleagues on board ship meeting for the first time, that wouldn't have been a handshaking moment then. Oh, no, no, uh, no, you would have bowed. Uh, You would have bowed, you saluted, of course, also in the Navy, you saluted um, and socially, certainly on shore, you, your first encounter with somebody would have been a bow or a curtsy. If you're meeting another officer, another member of the service, you would have saluted. Um, right. But in civilian life, you, you bowed and curtsied and usually with gloves on. So <laughs> that was the other thing you with certainly gloves on. Yes. Yes. But in the evening, you always wore gloves for social events. Um huh. So gloved even at a, even at a ball like the one at Melbury Lodge, that would have been an occasion for still this kind of I'll, I'll use a contemporary phrase social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, yes, very much so. It was something that you absolutely did. You you can see that in contemporary literature. Um, you're about to dance, so you put on your gloves. The only time you touched people in the dance was with your hands in English country dancing. Um, yeah. Later in the period, of course, the waltz came in and other couples' dances. They were considered, well, the waltz at first was considered extremely lewd because you were touching the other person's torso. This hadn't happened on the English dance floor in about 200 years. So um, it was extremely risque. But uh, in English country dancing, you kept your distance. You only touched hands and definitely with gloves. So what what else might have been going on? We've been talking lately about um, Post Captain and and Jack and Stephen host a ball at Melbury Lodge. Yes. Um, the, the neighboring Admiral, Admiral Havoc's in attendance. What else might have been going on there that we can call to mind when we're reading through this passage? There were there are all these questions of rank, very subtle gradations of rank. And at a private ball, which was conducted quite differently from a public ball. Mm-hmm. The people who began the ball, who opened the ball, were usually the highest ranking people there. And if the admiral were dancing, he would have been the highest ranking man. If there were a bride present, she would have been considered the highest ranking woman temporarily, regardless of her rank in ordinary life. 
at a public ball, for example, public balls at Bath or other spa towns, there was usually a lottery system where the ladies would draw numbers, and that's how it determined where they stood in the set. Unlike in the movies where everybody's moving at once, it was the top couple dancing only with the next couple or two below them. And so the top woman, the very first woman, had to actually be the one to choose the dance and to tell the musicians what to play. And she would teach the dance essentially while doing it to her neighbors. And then they would move down after one round through the dance, they would move down and begin dancing with the people below them. So in other words, the top couple was gradually working their way down the set and the couples below were working their way gradually up. You can see that in the movies. But the difference in the film is that all of the dancers are moving at once. And that was not the case historically at the beginning of the dance. It was the ones working their way down who sort of flipped the switch for all the other dancers below. That doesn't make for very good television. (laughs) No, no, because it's a lot of kind of static people waiting for their their part of the dance to kind of evolve. That's right. Okay. So Karen, as a reenactor, um, it seems like uh, as you're reenacting all these times and settings with you and your guest, uh, perhaps people are getting a lot more out of the experience than they would by just reading the books. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's an immersive experience. It's, it's bringing it to life in a tactile way. You are experiencing the physical realities. I mean, of course we don't have rats, we don't have weevils, you know, um, and all those kinds of things, but um, you know, we get as close as we can. I'll never forget. Actually, I think it was my very first Jane Austen weekend. I had arrived on site. I was, you know, in my, my morning gown and getting my hair up. Then I, I came into the breakfast room. The fire was going. There were all these people sitting and sipping their drinking chocolate or their tea and coffee and eating their Georgian breakfast. And I just felt this wave of happiness well up in me. And I thought, this is what this is what I wanted. This is exactly what I was aiming to achieve. Of course, there, you know, there are interesting people who come out to these. Uh, we have students, we have dressmakers, we have 1812 reenactors, we have Patrick O'Brien freaks, like real hardcore fans. There's some proper freaks right there. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, people who've seen the Jane Austen movie, but I've never read the books. You know, we get all kinds of people and it's, it's a delight. It's an absolute delight. Fantastic. Um, these are people coming from the immediate area around Toronto or are they coming from, from further away? Um, we have, of course, quite a few people from Toronto, people from various parts of Ontario and various parts of Canada. We've had people from Victoria, BC, Vancouver, Nova Scotia, New York City, Boston, Chicago, several people from California. It's been just lovely to share all of this with them. The other lovely thing is that a lot of people have made new friendships this way. So, of course. Yeah, it's, it's lovely. So you, you mentioned working with reenactors who traveled from Nova Scotia. That reminds me that, of course, there's a big ball in um, the novel Surgeon's Mate, which is a few novels further on than where we are now. Mm. And perhaps without going into content that is a spoiler for those who care about the arc of Stephen and Jack, there's, <laughs> th- there's a big occasion that gets celebrated in the city of Halifax. Yeah. And that's another ball that O'Brien tells us about in some detail. But that's different, I think from the kind of social situation that we're seeing in Melbury Lodge and in London earlier on in the series? 
Yes, very definitely. A ball of that nature was definitely a question of rank, where you fit into the social strata. There were often balls for different levels of society. And this one clearly is for the highest ranking people. So certain kinds of people simply would not have been invited to this ball. Um, the other aspect that, that is so fascinating to me about the Halifax ball is that it was a historical reality. So, okay. yes, there will be lots to talk about later on if we get the opportunity. Well, let's, well I think we should plan to come back to that. That would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Carol, you, you talked about, you know, discovering Patrick O'Brien and that you've got a history of boats and water and ships. And, and I always feel a little funny sort of saying, speaking for your gender, I don't mean that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on, you know, women coming to Patrick O'Brien's books. What would be the payoff for, for women reading Patrick O'Brien? Oh, what a wonderful question. Well, we know from studies that have been done about how different genders read, women typically embrace a wider uh, range of topics than men. (laughs) You know, men, for example, are less likely to read a book with a female protagonist, for example, whereas that doesn't make any difference to women and so on. But I think that um, it's very clear that Patrick O'Brien was pretty feminist. Um, his thinking is very nuanced. It's very, uh, and it becomes, I think, more so, more and more so throughout the series. I think he was very thoughtful about the position of women in society. That appears very early on. His enormous admiration and respect for strong, individual, independent women is very, very clear. Also, I think just the subtlety of his thinking about everything. I, I, I mean, personally, I think he was a genius. The the subtlety, the intricacy of his handling of the human condition is so full of compassion, wit, complexity, insight, and humor. There are so many subtle little literary references, um, including many uh, very quiet, sort of silent references to Jane Austen sprinkled out yeah. throughout the books. Um, and it's... Um, I think it's just a feast. They're wonderful books for any intelligent reader. Karen, hopefully we all get to live a life that looks more like normality in the coming weeks and months. Assuming that we do, what kind of projects or reenactments might we find you in in the coming weeks or months? Well, um, uh, there may be things that we can do um, adapting some events to the outdoors using social distancing and so on. Um, I have often done 18th century masquerade balls in the winter. Oh, so, cool. uh, masks. <laughs> no, just, you know what they say, I, if you can't fix it, feature it. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, just, we'll see what happens. I'm, oh, wow. I'm keeping fairly optimistic. Um, I think the world is probably going to look very different when this is over. We're going to be talking, our, uh, you know, my committee... Uh, uh, for the modern English country dance, we'll be talking soon, and uh, and I will be consulting my regulars and my volunteers. Um, yeah. But we'll we'll just look at it and um, and get some ideas in place for uh, possibilities, and keep our fingers crossed. Many many best wishes and good luck. If people want to find out more about what you do, uh, or learn more about the weekends as as our times get back to whatever normal becomes. How would they find you and how would they find out more about you? There are several ways. 
One is my website, janeaustendancing.ca. I'm also very active on Twitter. One of my Twitter handles is at Jane Austen Dance. And the other one, which is more naval in nature, is at 1812dance. Karen, thanks so very much for taking time out to be with us here on A Lover's Hole. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I wish you the best of luck with the podcast. I will be following it with great interest. So just to navigate back to where we are in Post-Captain, at this point, the Wikipedia plot summary says this. An inadequate thief approaches Jack Aubrey as he walks outdoors. This thief, Mr. Scriven, proves to be a useful friend, knowing the law of debt and knowing where Aubrey can be safe from bailiffs. Aubrey and Maturin move to the grapes, safe in the liberties of the Savoy. So they're in another version of British society now that they're kind of on the run from the law. Yeah, this is really a different, a whole different lifestyle for them. Jack really, outside of certain bounds, is subject to be arrested at any time for this level of debt. So he has to, you know, hide himself, go very secretly, um, and and apparently it's there's a great deal of detail into, you know, Sundays are free when you're on the ship, you're okay. Certain parts of the physical locations are okay. Uh, and, and Jack has no notion of this. And Stephen, in his helpful way, uh, realizes that Scrivens does and is using him and that knowledge to help Jack once again. So what did you think of the, the character of Mr. Scriven then? Well, it, you know, it's so fascinating that here you have this person who is, you know, presumably going to uh, cut your neck if you don't give him your purse, but he's horrible. He's horrible. He does it very badly. And um, and Jack, who has been so deep in thought, finally starting to call himself up on, you know, is it Diana? Is it Sophie? How do I even, you know, is it even legitimate to bring logic to bear in this situation, Jack, who's such a romantic? Mm-hmm. And in the midst of all this, somebody says, you know, essentially your purse or your life. And 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 Jack just mm-hmm. knocks him out, essentially. Beats him pretty badly. He picks him up and throws him over his shoulder or something. Yeah. Right, right. Wraps him up because he doesn't want to get his uniform dirty and, uh, you know, uh, puts him over his shoulder and takes him home for Stephen to sort him out. <laughs> This could be, you can think of all kinds of characters in Dickens and other places that this could be, yeah. but no, no, here is this guy as, as you know, Jack hasn't had much uh, discussion with him, but Stephen, while Jack is snoozing a little bit in the morning, starts to talk to him and ask him and he says, you know, tell me, uh, oh, well, and, and Scriven is clearly kind of very subservient. He's very learned. He's, he's got some proper etiquette. And he asked Stephen if he can give an account of himself to tell him, you know, sort of how he got to this point. And, you know, he says, for my own part, I took to translating for the booksellers. I had had to live for a month on the case of the Druids impartially considered a little piece in the lady's repository. And the Druids did not run more to more than bread and milk. We agreed for half a guinea sheet. And it goes on and on. And you think, where does O'Brien get this stuff? Um, but it's not, funny. It's yeah, so funny. and as 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 it's funny, just right now, as I hear you read out, I'm thinking there's a little bit of Uriah Heap about this guy Scriven somehow. Yeah. You know, he's this slightly ridiculous, slightly grotesque, but really ultimately sympathetic person trying to scrape a living. 
and a bit mannered and a bit self-conscious as well. Absolutely, so true. And you know, with the, with the the louse crawling on Jack, <laughs> crawling on him, and Stephen, you know, taking it upon himself, you know, to clean this guy up, to take care of this guy, and even I, I was so taken back to to offer to per, you know, when he asks Jack what you're going to do with him, and and you know, Jack says, you know, I'm going to turn him over to the constable, and Stephen says, no, 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 he'll be hung. Um, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll buy him from you. And Jack says, what, you mean to dissect him already? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> Jack's got straight onto the ghoulish side of Stephen's right. character. <laughs> but, but no, Stephen is going to take him on as yet another project that he can redeem. And I think sees, as you point out, that this guy can be tremendously helpful to Jack and Jack's current predicament. Okay, now sit down here. Tell me what you know about the law of debt. You could be the guy that helps us to stay out of jail for just enough weeks for, or days for Jack to make it onto his ship. Right. It's funny. I've, I've read online, you and I have been starting to, to kind of take part a little bit in the, the gun room of HMS Surprise, which is a, a, a mail serve list on the internet, which is great. Really interesting bunch of people there. Those are great resources that they've offered. Looking back into the archives of the discussion of Post Captain on that board, there were some people discussing whether the character of Scriven might have been a little bit autobiographical, whether that's O'Brien presenting himself in a slightly self-deprecating way as a character in the books. What do you think of that idea? Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing that he would do, isn't it? You know, living off translations, living in humble circumstances, you know, having to haggle with publishers. This all sounds like O'Brien might have been talking about his own life. At least very, a bit. very much his own life. You know, you kind of wonder... You know, if you see O'Brien inserting himself in in different people in different places along the series, you know, even even in this one with Diana's mad cousin that she sent off to visit. Oh yeah, cousin Lowndes. Yeah. yeah, that you know, here he is living There's another another recruit, another recluse trying to trying to to write, but this time not on quite a, such a sound basis of of sanity. <laughs> Right, absolutely. Oh my goodness! You know, one of the things that I love here too is that you know we've got a little bit of trouble brewing between these characters. We've got certainly right. the trouble from debt, but O'Brien takes time to remind us of the friendship too, as they're both living there, yeah. um, and they're trying to be a little lighthearted, a little amiable with each other. Um, O'Brien reminds us that they're they're kind of a little bit like the odd couple in in the early days of, of I'm thinking back to the plays and the television and the movie of these two characters who yeah. are so different from each other. Um, O'Brien says, you know, they're looking after themselves, living with rigid economy, and there was no greater proof of their friendship than the way their harmony withstood their very grave differences in domestic behavior. In Jack's opinion, Stephen was little better than a slut. <laughs> and goes on to tell about how he leaves all his stuff all over the place. Doesn't, you know, he, he's the physician, but doesn't clean him up. You know, uses his wig for a tea cozy, for his milk saucepan, yeah. um, and, you know, has bits of his breakfast lying around. Jack, being the ship shaped guy, puts on the apron. Cleans it all up. Stephen is harassing him about his standards of cleanliness. So it's funny. Speaking of the odd couple, um, we went looking online and we found a clip from that same movie. And here it comes. What's wrong, Oscar? Something wrong with this system. That's what's wrong. I don't think that two single men living alone in a big eight-room apartment should have a cleaner house than my mother. 
Well, wait, wait, what are you talking about? I didn't say that you have to do it. You don't have to clean up. Well, what you do is worse. You're always in my bathroom, hanging up my towels. Whenever I smoke, you follow me around with an ashtray. Last night, I found you in the kitchen, washing the floor, shaking your head and moaning, footprints, footprints. I didn't say they were yours. Well, they were mine, damn it. I have feet, they make prints. What do you want me to do, climb across the cabinets? No, I just want you to walk on the floor. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I really Look, do. All I'm trying to do is keep this place livable. I didn't know I irritated you that much. Leave my pictures alone. I was just trying to even them up. I want oh. them uneven. They're my pictures. Even up your own pictures. <laughs> I was wondering how long it would take. How long what would take? Before I got on your nerves. You know, it's, it's great to see that uh, odd couples weren't limited to the early 1800s, but uh, we see it here with Jack Lemmon, with Walter Matthau. And Patrick O'Brien gave us a beautiful glimpse of the same thing with Captain Jack Aubrey trying to fuss after <laughs> Stephen Matron, who probably was feeling that if he hadn't gotten on Jack's nerves yet, he was about to. Even with the tension, even with the tough times, here it is, O'Brien lightens our day just a little bit. Oh, it's great. And he turns on the head of a pin, doesn't he, between the, the good humor and the and this kind of bucolic, friendly, happy, bantering relationship they have. And then actually, there's, there's always been this underlying this rivalry over Diana, and they're starting to just step back from being completely honest with each other. And I, I, you know, for me, it's really sad, really heartbreaking, as you see mm. that, they're, that they, they both discover that they've both still been calling on Diana Villiers now that she's staying in London. And from these kind of great big long knockabout exchanges, the sentences get really short. Jack says, I had no notion that you would call it Bruton Street. And then Stephen doesn't have a swift rejoinder. He just kind of nods. And the conversation's been shrunk down to this really almost Pinteresque dialogue of short half sentences. Yeah. And you can really feel that these two people are re really not sure about where they stand with each other. And it's just so sad that this potentially happy friendship also has this potentially destructive kind of jealousy between the two of them. Yeah, and it really... You look at these characters sometimes and you want to shout at them like like you do at the horror movie going, no, 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 don't go down in the basement. No, the caller is in the house. It's like, look, there are little simple things you could do here. You know, tell each other what you're really thinking. Tell each other how you're really feeling. But there seems to be this code that they live by and this genteel code, yeah. even though, you know, Stephen can't tell Sophie how Jack feels about her. You, you know, you, Jack can't really tell Stephen all he feels. Everybody's worried about being rejected out of hand, you know, a, a fate worse than death. And yeah. it's, uh, it's really tough here. And again, I mean, we talked in Master and Commander about how there are, th this relationship is almost like a romantic relationship between a man <laughs> and a woman. True. And in, in, in happier times, it was like a Nora Ephron right. romance. But it's almost like we're hearing an argument between two couples whose relationship is on the brink of, of collapse. And I love the way O'Brien writes the end of this particular section. You know, in, in a sort of melodramatic setting, the conversation between them would have ended with one of them, you know, pushing back his chair and saying, mm. damn you, and flouncing out or making a big speech, kind of declaiming the virtue of their position and just how lousy the other one's position was. But actually, they both just kind of claw back from from an explosion and Stephen says no 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 it's fine I will go with you after all and Jack says well of course you know if you've been offered you know job of the physician of the fleet of course you should take it and then in, in the end they make up and I thought I was so affected by that you know in the end they make up that's such a grown up 
but slightly dysfunctional way for a couple <laughs> to finish a conversation like this rather than with door slamming and you know roll, too roll credits. true too true so i i think that we might be about up at the end of our episode let's just take stock jack and steven still rivals for diana we don't know how that's going to play out sophie still really really infatuated with jack and i think i don't know what you think wishing that jack would propose and wishing that there was something that she could do but held back by her duty to her mum, who's clearly this manipulative old trout. <laughs> um, the two of them now, though, about to take on this uh, very bizarre posting onto this very bizarre ship, the Polycrest, which we should talk about some more next time, I think. And m- maybe after the interlude of being ashore and in polite society and in the Jane Austen world, maybe it's all going to be okay again. And maybe when we get to see, there'll be action and cannons and boarding the French. Well, and and we've got this moment of decision for Jack as he's saying, you know, here's this offer from the Admiralty and he's got Diana kind of saying, step out there, be a little bolder. I thought you're more of a man. And then he's got his thoughts to, you know, the Navy and duty and Sophie and perhaps a quiet life in a cottage. Who knows where are these guys going to go with this? And, and, you know, as, as Jack susses all that out, you know, what What happens for Stephen and uh, between Jack and Stephen? Well, it sounds like that there's going to be plenty more for us to talk about in the next episode. What do you think? Ah, I don't know. Plenty more. What do you say to a little bit more (laughs) Patrick O'Brien next time? With all my heart. So we want to say thank you once again to Karen for joining us. We had a fantastic conversation with her. Please look out for her on social media. Please look out for us on social media as well. You know where to find us by now on Facebook and on Twitter. Just search for The Lubber's Hole. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe. Please tell your friends. Please leave us a review. Freshly shaved, showered with faces made for audio.